Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. I am so excited. I think we are in week 12 of our Hebrew series, and I don't know about you, but I have been loving our time here in the book of Hebrews, getting to kind of linger deeply in it. And I've got to tell you, this might just be my favorite passage, stretch of scripture here in the book of Hebrews, here at the tail end of Hebrews chapter six. Once we get to seven, eight, and nine, I may say the same thing, so don't hold me to it. But let me tell you why I love this passage. You can turn to your uh, Bibles now. We're gonna be in the back half of Hebrews chapter six, but I love that. I love this passage because there's two significant truths that I think are kind of on display that that this passage kind of marries those two. And the first significant truth that I would say that's kind of here embedded in the passage is one of my favorite truths. And that's this, that usually following following a severe warning of God's word comes a very loving appeal. Oftentimes in God's word, when there is a severe warning that we read about, it's not, off, it's not long that if you kind of put your finger on the warning and look around, there's often an appeal. Maybe it's about God's character. Maybe it's about a conditional promise that if you would heed the warning and live this way, that there's a different result that might await you. Or maybe there'll be this gracious appeal to respond in humble repentance And that is on display here. Actually, all throughout the book of Hebrews, you'll see this. There's five significant warnings. We just did warning number three last week. And this week, we're gonna see a really tender, loving appeal that the pastor, as I like to call him, the writer, the author of Hebrews does. Now, look, I wanna remind you who his audience is. He is writing a group of Messianic believers, Messianic Hebrews. These are Jewish believers who now have trusted in Christ for their salvation. And yet their faith, it's, they're relatively new believers and their faith is getting tested. They are being persecuted for their beliefs and thus they're starting to maybe waver a little bit. And it's gonna highlight this second truth that is often visible in God's word. And that second truth is this, and this one's a hard one for me to accept, is that often the fulfillment of one of God's promises doesn't follow quickly on the heels of the promise itself. What I'm trying to say is that often God will make a promise that we can count on, and yet there will be some time in between the actual fulfillment of that promise. This is where this letter is being written to to the Hebrews. It is between the promise and the fulfillment. There are some promises that this newly tested faith of the Hebrew people are like, what do we do with this? We're waiting, Why, why has it not come true? And they're beginning to waver, and they're beginning to wonder, should we go back? And the pastor's gonna go, no, 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 no. We're gonna keep moving forward. We're not gonna drift away from Jesus. We're gonna draw near to him. And I don't know if that resonates with you, but if I had to guess, many of us kind of live in this tension of waiting. There's a promise over here, and yet we wait for the fulfillment, and we're stuck in the middle, wondering what do we do with this? 
We're not the only ones. This is true. You can look a cursory glance of scripture and you'll notice David had to wait 13 years. He was promised the king to be king. And 13 years later, he finally was king 20 years before he was king over all of Israel. Abraham, who we will dig into today, was promised a child 25 years later. God fulfilled that promise as he intended. Meanwhile, he had to wait in that space. The nation of Israel waited centuries for the promised land. You and I today, still some 2,000 years later, a promise has been granted. Christ is coming back one day. And yet we're still waiting in the middle. And I know you can feel it. That's maybe a big way. But in small ways, there is this tension between the promise and the fulfillment of it. And we could unpack the different things going on in our lives, but in some form or fashion, we kind of look up and go, Lord, Romans 8, 28, you said you promised that you will work all things together for the good of those who love you. And right now, there are some pieces in my life that don't quite feel like they're fitting together. Doesn't feel like you've worked it all out. And that's a little bit of what's going on with the Hebrews. They're looking at their life and they are being persecuted. They are being challenged and they're kind of going, God, I don't see how this is all gonna make sense. There is a tension that is happening with our people. And so with that in mind, let's read how the pastor is gonna begin to kind of move in and shepherd their hearts in this moment. We're gonna be in Hebrews 6, uh, verses 13 through 20, but I wanna go back four verses, pick up there, and then continue on in our passage. Verse nine, the pastor writes, though we speak in this way, this is probably that, that, that referencing that I've just given you a severe warning. I'm spoken in a certain way yet, loving appeal coming. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through who faith and patience, faith and patience inherit the promises. And then our passage. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one um, greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, one of the things that I want to do with this passage this morning, there's a couple ways that we could approach it. I want to use it as a, as, a, as a jumping off point to do a little bit of application. We've been in this book of Hebrews for a little bit, and we've, we've, we've been addressing this audience. But one of the cruxes is what are they going to do in this moment while they wait, while there's the circumstances of the, their world haven't totally locked into place? How can they wait faithfully, patient? What does it look like to draw near? What does it look like by faith and patience to move towards the promises and not leave them on the table 
like the Hebrews are threatening to do here. And so the three things that I want to move through this, maybe put a little application to this. And what, what do we do while we wait for the promises of God? I think the first thing that we can do that we'll see is that we can trust God's character in his word. The second thing that we'll see is that you've got to cultivate a faithful patience like Abraham. We will unpack just what that means. And then the third thing is we'll end with is holding fast to the promises that we have already received, that we've already been given. And so let's jump back into Hebrews 6 and look at it. I won't read the passage again, but the first thing that we've got to do is we've got to look that this passage is ultimately about God's character and his word. And so one of the faithful things we can do is to begin to trust in him. So uh, look at these verses and I wanna highlight just some of the aspects that are of God's character here. That's here in yellow. You're gonna see God's character is fully on display in this passage. In verse 10, it says, God's not an unjust God. Verse 13, there's no one greater by whom to swear. Jesus sits sovereign over it all. He is sovereignly in full control and he's unchangeable. And it's all crescendoing to verse 18 where it says that it is impossible for God to lie. These are some of the nature characteristics of God. It's impossible for God to lie because he's unchangeable. There's no one greater that can alter what he has spoken and he's not unjust so as to change on us. And so we start in that place. And then we're going to see that there is a picture of idea of the promises, swearing, oath, confirmation. That's going to be on display. You're going to see how many times that word or these ideas show up in this passage. Promises and this is language, strong language of God saying, if I've declared it, it's gonna come true. So you combine these characteristics of God's character and God's word. And we're gonna see because God's character is trustworthy. If God makes a promise, not only will he keep it, he must keep it or else he ceases to be God or else he would be lying about the promise or maybe someone would be sitting above him able to alter what he has declared if God makes a promise, he not only will keep it, but he must keep it. The language of this passage would have triggered a, 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 a verse from the Torah for them. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's character and his word can be trustworthy, and so we've got to learn to trust it. He goes on to say in verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, his purpose in the sense, we're gonna dig into Abraham here in a second, his purpose with Abraham was, I'm gonna give you a, na a, a nation and a land. And because Abraham was an heir, that was his inheritance, and that couldn't be changed. To you and me, it's all sorts of promises today. If you are a child of God, you are an heir of God, and you are an heir to all the promises of God. And that has an unchangeable character to that purpose because he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, his word, his promises, and then his oath, you and I, when we want to kind of swear that we're trustworthy, I think like in a court of law, I don't know if they still do this, but like you put your hand on the Bible, right? And say, I swear to tell the whole truth, the truth, we're swearing on something greater than ourselves. Well, God doesn't have that. 
He is the great one. And so he swears on his own name, his word, his oath. And all throughout scripture, he keeps reminding us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all his promises are yes and amen. A good Hebrew would have known 1 Kings 8.56 that not a single word of God's good promises will ever fail. God is securing this in. And his motivation in us in for doing such, double downing and offering promises and declaring it and repeating them is that we, finishing out verse 18, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to him. The author is not asking for a trust of the mind. You can jot down in front of your notes, the author is beginning to say, we are looking for an experiential trust, a trust that moves towards Jesus and says, I'm gonna trust in the promises experientially. I'm gonna dive all in And I think this is the perseverance that he wants for the the Hebrew people. In the face of the hardships that they're facing, he's saying, look, perseverance for you is trusting God's character. He is who he says he is. And then trust his promises. His words will come true as he says they will come true. And he's calling us to live it out, not just know it up here. Now, I know that that's a little bit ethereal. And so it's in this moment that, that the pastor's gonna go, look, yes, you've got to trust God's character in his word, but it's time. Let me, you need an example of what we're talking about. He's gonna move to the example of Abraham. And I know we're bouncing around a little bit, but stick with me. Let's go back to verse 12 for a second, because last week as Derek was unpacking, the, the pastor was beginning to put up onto the T what he wants us to imitate, because it says in that verse, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's teeing up the idea of Abraham, because the next verse, for when God made a promise to Abraham, Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's a verse lifted straight from Genesis 22, 17. We're gonna get to that verse here in a second, maybe a few minutes. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, faith and patience, he obtained the promise. Now I will tell you that there is a lot of context to that idea of Abraham having patiently waited. When we say, what does it look like to cultivate a faithful patience like Abraham? Let's go back to our Old Testament and draw some truths from Abraham's life. I wanna remind you, one of the reasons why we picked the book of Hebrews is because we also wanted to kind of point back and look back at some of our Old Testament so that we could get a right understanding of what has happened. So let's go back to Genesis 12 and let's look at Abraham's life and see if we can't draw out some truths of what it looks like to be both faithful and patient, even while we wait in the middle of the promises, while we wait for the promise and for the fulfillment of it. In Genesis chapter 12, we meet Abram, at, who's, that's his name at the time. It says now in verse one, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here comes the promise, verse two, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then in verse four, it says that Abraham went I think the first thing that we need to understand here is that Abraham went all in on the promises of God. 
You see, we, we, we blow past verse one in this moment where it just says, go, when the Lord said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, we look at that and from a Western culture mindset, we go, well, yeah, that's what we all do. That's, that's what leaving and cleaving looks like. But in this culture, in the ancient East culture, you never left your father's house. Your, father was, your father's house was the source of security and provision and you never left until you became the patriarch. And so to leave your father's house was this declaration of, I'm gonna figure out my security and my provision on my own. And so what God's saying is don't find refuge in your father. I want you to come find refuge in me. Come all in with me and watch how I provide for you. Watch how I keep you safe along the way. And our pastor in Hebrews in chapter 11 will say, Abraham had no idea where he was going, but he obeyed. He went all in on the promises of God. I think one of maybe the most miserable places to be in this world is standing on the edge of God's promises and yet not diving fully all in. It's like this place where you can like see the promises of God. You might be even hearing the promises of God right now. We may have just saying some promises, but you're really just on the edge as an observer. You haven't gone in and experienced them for yourself. See, a lot of us, we've arranged our lives, I think, to where we actually kind of don't need God to show up at times. It's like we have all the security, we have all the provision we need, and if God shows up or not, I think we're going to sometimes be okay. And yet we haven't just banked our lives on some of the promises of God. Do you have a promise that you have banked your life upon? Can I tell you one of mine? A few years ago, it was 2015, I was at the tail end of seven years of willful disobedience. I've told my story often but it's worth reminding today because it was seven years of willful disobedience. And I remember I was a part of this body of believers. I wasn't on staff, but I was sitting there and I would listen to the promises and the warnings of God. And I was like, listen to the warnings and going, man, that's come true in my life. And yet I would hear the promises and go, wouldn't that be nice standing firmly on the shore, not willing to go all in. Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals his transgression shall not prosper. For seven years, I was gambling. I was lying and deceiving people in my life. And I was even stealing money from the place where I worked. And while I hid my sin, my soul did not prosper. Not talking about a financial. I'm talking about a withering of the soul. And I looked at that warning and I said, man, I have tested that and it is true. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But that verse ends because often after the most severe of warnings comes a loving appeal. That verse ends with, but he who confesses and forsakes will obtain mercy. And I remember a day in January seven years tired of living the concealing life, I decided, you know what, Lord, I'm going all in on that promise. I am banking my life on this promise. You say that if I confess and I forsake, I will obtain mercy. I don't know what consequences might come my way, but I am gonna trust and go all in and go whatever consequences come, it will be worth it, Lord, if I get your mercy. And so I took the plunge and I went all in. 
You will never know the promise-keeping, trustworthy nature of our God until in desperation you run to him for refuge from your sin, from your struggles, from your toil, or your pain. Do you know there are over 8,800 promises of God in this book? Which one are you testing? Which one are you experiencing fully? Which one have you banked your life on? Or which two, or which 10, or which 50? And if you don't have an answer, I just want to tell you, you're, you're going to struggle to cultivate faith and patience like Abraham. Abraham decided, I'm going to trust God fully. And that was hard for Abraham. Because there were some things going on in his life. You're saying, Lord, you're promising me. One of the things you need to know, and we're going to get to it in, in, in Genesis 15, is Abraham's like, you've promised me a nation. You've promised me a child. Problem. I'm 75, my wife's 65, we're barren, and there's no child. So I don't exactly know how that promise is going to be fulfilled. And meanwhile, he keeps waiting. We're not exactly sure how long it goes by, but we show up in Genesis 15, and Abraham's kind of raising his hands going, I've got some questions, I've got concerns, I've got some doubts. The second thing that Abraham did to cultivate faithful patience is he brought his questions and his doubts to God. Look at it. In Genesis 15, he has a conversation with him. In, in verse 2 of Genesis 15, Abraham says, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. Behold, you have given me no offspring. He's coming to God, having a conversation. God then takes him out and goes, Hey, let me double down. Let's go outside. Let's look. See the stars? That's going to be your offspring. Promise repeated. And it appears to me to be the same conversation. Two verses later, Abraham, it says, Abraham, it says, believe the Lord, verse six. And then in verse eight, he's like, wait, I believe you, but hold on a second. He said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Question, how's this fulfillment actually gonna happen again? Abraham brings his questions and he brings his doubts and he brings his concerns with the Lord and has a conversation with God. Bring God your questions, your doubts, your concerns, all of those things. But my challenge to you is linger with him long enough to wait for his reply. This isn't a drive-by. This isn't just a quick fly-by and go, Lord, this is a problem. What are you going to do about it? But you linger with him. It's one of the reasons why we want people dwelling richly in this book because we think it's living and active. We've talked about that. And one of the ways that God begins to address our concerns and our doubts and our questions is as we study it, as we dwell richly in this book, he begins to, the word of God begins to pop in our hearts and connect with us, even at our concerns and our deepest questions. Abraham was willing to have a conversation with God, wait there, dwell with him long enough to listen for his reply. Now you and I might look up and go, well, that's, man, that's Abraham, that's, one of the great heroes of the faith, the patriarch of, of the nation of Israel. Of course he didn't. Of course he did these great things. And Paul even picks up that idea in Romans 4. He says that no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. It says no unbelief made Abraham waver but you need to know something. That is a general declaration of the trajectory of Abraham's life. When you look at 
the sum of Abraham's life. It was one of moving towards trusting the promises of God. But we're gonna skip over Genesis 16 and 20, but if you would read Genesis 16 and 20, you are going to see a man that blew it big time. And he took the promise into his own hands and tried to produce his own security and his own provision to secure God's promises. He lied about his wife. He had a child outside of wedlock and he took matters into his own hands. But the third thing I think that Abraham did to cultivate faith and patience is he didn't let these past failures hinder his future obedience to God. The trajectory of his life was ultimately moving back towards trusting the promises of God that even when he messed up, he went back to trusting. What a great testimony. We're all going to blow it in some form or fashion, but wouldn't that be a great testimony of our lives is that the trajectory of us was moving towards trusting more and more that the promises would come true. And so if you've messed up this week, this year, this decade, your entire lifetime, I have good news for you. You can start Abraham's testimony today. Abraham was 75 when he got onto the trajectory of trusting the promises of God. And so let that be a word of encouragement to maybe start a new act of repentance and surrender. Third thing is Abraham didn't let his past failures hinder his future obedience to God. The fourth thing that Abraham did, and this one might require some explanation, Abraham planted tamarisk trees. <laughs> Go to uh, uh, Genesis 21 real quick because we're getting really close to that moment of Genesis 22 where Abraham is about to respond with a great act of faith. And it begs the question, how did we get to this moment? What was happening in Abraham's life? Well, I think we're watching him begin to go all in on the promises. I think we're seeing how he, how he moves towards God with his questions and his doubts, and he doesn't last, let past failures hinder future obedience. But Abraham, as Isaac arrives in Genesis 21, Abraham's starting to go, oh my gosh, I've waited. I waited 25 years for him, and that promise was fulfilled. So maybe some of the other promises God has given me are gonna come true too. He says that he's gonna make a whole nation of my family, not just one son, that he's gonna give that nation a land. I haven't seen that come true yet. And so what does Abraham do while he waits for those promises to be fulfilled? In verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 33 of Genesis 21, it says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, two verses before Genesis 22, and he called there, on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Why am I highlighting that? A tamarisk tree is a tree that offers no immediate benefit to the planter. In fact, it might take up to 80 years before that tree produces any blessing for anybody. And so you don't plant tamarisk trees for yourself. You don't plant tamarisk trees even for your children. You are planting them for generations that you might not ever meet. And think about this. 
Beersheba here in the southern part of Israel. Abraham is going, I believe you, God. I think you are going to fulfill your promise. You're going to give me a nation and you're going to give me a people. And when they come back, there will be a tamarisk tree waiting to give them blessing. And he had been trusting God in the little things all along the way. He had been seeing provision that God was producing. He was tasting God's forgiveness. And so he began to do even the little things like planting a tamarisk tree. For you and me today, it begs the question, what are we doing like that? What are we planting that isn't for us or for our glory, but maybe it's for a, the, the, the benefit of a generation that we may never meet? Every time you share the gospel, I believe you're planting a tamarisk tree. You don't exactly know if it will benefit them, how it might benefit the trajectory that it might change their life, but you are planting a tree and let's see what happens with it. I love what Mona was talking about. James was talking about, they run towards pastoral care opportunities to the hurting, to the joyless, and they move into that room. They are planting a tamarisk tree. They might get no immediate benefit from that moment. And yet, they are trusting that God is at work with something bigger. And even while they're waiting to see if God does anything in those people's lives, they keep planting faithfully. What tamarisk trees are you trusting to plant because you believe that God's promises will come true? There's so many promises of God. Some of them have come true. Some of them are conditional if we will live a certain way. And some of them take immeasurable faith and patience. Abraham, technically, it says later in Hebrews 11, there were some promises that he never saw fulfilled, but he could see them from afar that he knew that there'd be another lifetime where he would actually taste the fulfillment of that. And what are you doing with those? Can you wait in the middle going, this promise may never happen, but I can look beyond that moment and know that the fulfillment might come in another lifetime. That's what Abraham's doing. So that when we get to the moment of Genesis 22, Abraham has been growing in faith and patience. And we get to this moment. In verse 22, uh, chapter 22, verse one, we keep tracking with Abraham and it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. After this, namely the birth of Isaac, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham, and underline this. And Abraham said, here I am. You can underline it again in verse seven and you can underline it again in verse 11. This is one of my favorite Hebrew words. Translates in the English, here I am. This is not a, 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 a location announcement of like, hey, God, I'm over here. This is a spiritual declaration. The Hebrew word is hanani. And the idea is, it is, I am completely available. Whatever you ask of me, I will do. I don't know the call. I don't know the consequence, but here I am fully surrendered. If you ask it, I will do it. How do you get to a moment like that is because you've watched God be faithful all along the way. And so Abraham says, here I am. I don't know what's up. And, Abraham, and God says, here's what I want you to do. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. That's asking something. And even as we get later into Genesis 22, Isaac up on the altar, knife is in hand, God calls out to Abraham again, and Abraham answers the same way, Hanani, I'm 
I am here, Lord. What do you want of me? Whatever the call, whatever the consequence, I will do it. And God says, now I know that you will fear me. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so in verse 16, we pick up where we were in Hebrews 6. So by myself I have sworn, I will put an oath on my own name, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. You, because you have patiently waited, it says about Abraham, you will obtain the promise. Double downed, I've secured it with an oath. And in a sense, he got... Isaac back in that moment. And so we remind ourselves of the faithful patience. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 12, that we are but a living sacrifice, laying down our own life even while we're still alive. It's the call of the believer. And that's what the Hebrews pastor is going. That's what I'm asking you to do in this moment. Lay, put your life on the altar. And if the persecuting party comes and takes it, so be it. And in the meantime, he's going to call them to the promises that they have already received. Look at this. Verse 18, finishing it back out. We who have fled for refuge might have strange or strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What is that? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the king of Melchizedek. In the Old Testament, the people of God could get into the presence of God one day with one person. And that's if that one person did a bunch of other sacrificial stuff in order to get into that room today because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. He has gotten behind the curtain. He has torn the veil. He's gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And we, you and me, every single one of us can dwell in the presence of God each and every day. And we never have to leave. And so we don't have to drift away. We can draw near. This is a promise that was declared and it has been fulfilled. And don't, as you're waiting for some of the other promises to be fulfilled, don't forget about the ones that have already been fulfilled. What an incredible promise that we get to hold on to because of what Christ has done in sacrificing himself for us on the cross. You and I get to dwell in the presence of God and never have to leave, never You'll see this image if you ever tour the Roman catacombs on some of the tombs there. Uh, it's a cross anchor. And um, if you're familiar, if you've ever toured the Roman catacombs, I got to do it a few years ago. And this sticks out. You'll see these all over some of the tombs. This was a group of people around the time that this letter was written, young in their faith believers in Jesus Christ who were martyred for their faith. And yet they clung to this. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul and his name is Jesus who is, allows us to be in the presence of God. And so we are gonna cling to the cross and what Christ has accomplished for it. He's paid for my sins so that one day I can dwell eternally in the presence of God. And if they take my life, I know what, where my anchor is. If the storms come, I'm anchored in to the person of Jesus Christ. And that promise is secure and I'm banking my life on it. And many did. And as a last testament for you and I, 2,000 years later, they put a cross anchor on their tomb so that we would know 
They're like, look, my blood may be a tamarisk tree for the church, but let it be. And I'll trust the Lord to grow up something in its place. And man has it. One of the other promises that I've hold, held on to, and it's been a guiding moment for me, and it's allowed me to kind of keep running back to the promise that I have secured by Christ, is there is a verse in Ezekiel 33, a prophet's a place. It comes after a warning. But there's this loving appeal in verse 15 of Ezekiel 33. It says, if a wicked man restores a pledge, if he pays back that which he's stolen, if he walks by my statutes without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. This isn't a life of perfection. This is a general trajectory of will you obey me? You shall surely live. None of your sins shall be remembered. You shall not die. You shall surely live. And I have looked at that promise many times and said, I am banking my life on that promise. And if you're telling me, Jesus, if you're telling me that you will not remember my sin, I will live a life of full surrender. I will bank my life on that promise. And it's held fast and it's helped me hold fast to an encouragement of hope. So much so that uh, 15 months after I confessed, I was making uh, money in a variety of ways. God was providing in, in just odds and ends. And I had all these little ways of just a job with a little kind of a two-hour job here and a two-day job here and a two-week job over here. And 15 months in, I get a phone call. Someone offered me a full-time job and it was a borderline dream job. And in that moment, I just was like, Lord, oh my gosh. You are the God that has fully provided all 15 months and now up until this moment, my goodness, here's my life. I'm amazed. And yet there was like a pause and, and it's like I heard not an audible voice, but it was this moment of, hey, Jeff. And this one felt like a big conversation. And I was like, uh, here I am, God. Send the, send the job that I have for you. Got something else. It's like, wait, you've, this is what we've been moving towards. This is the promise that you were going to provide. And now here's the great fulfillment of, you want me to put that back on, on the altar? And then you remind yourself that this is a God that is willing to forget the very sin that I have done that went to the cross to die for it. And it's like, okay, God, I'll put it on the altar. And in the craziest no's of all no's, I said no. And two days later, I, I, I get an opportunity. I still got to make ends meet. I get an opportunity to go clean an attic in East Texas. And so I say yes. And if you've ever wondered like the wilderness generation, oh, you brought me out of Egypt so, I could die, so we could die in the wilderness. This was my moment here. I was like, oh, so you didn't finish me off when I confessed. You wanted me to die in this East Texas attic. I get it. And yet the promise that this is saying, this, this, these verses end with this crescendo of, hey, the presence of God is no longer in some temple in a far off land. The presence of God is now here if you have believed in him. And so let me tell you something. In an attic in East Texas, I worshiped with Jesus. 
and I was not alone, and I cleaned that attic, and I would like to think it's the cleanest attic ever there is existed in East Texas, and that may be saying something. And I don't say that to celebrate me. I celebrate Christ in that he will go with you. He will never leave. He will never forsake you. And you can hold fast to it. He is an anchor for you in times of storms, in times of trouble. When it doesn't make sense, you can count on him. And so when you consider the trustworthiness of God, that his promises will come true, not a single word will ever fail. When you think that those promises have been sealed with the blood of Christ, then it demands something of us. And I think it's nothing less than a life of total surrender, total here I am, Lord. And some of you may not be there today, and that's okay. Because in that cultivation of faith and patience that Abraham hid, he didn't start there either. He started way back with just trying out one of God's promises for himself. And he even took some of his questions and his doubts. So wherever you are in that journey, just move towards, change the trajectory that you're on. Because I think of what Christ has done for us. We should be ready to live a life of full surrender. And he may have you plant tamarisk trees in the desert for the rest of your life. And you may never get to taste the benefit of them, but look past the moment and beyond. And I think one day we will experience the fullness of all of the promises that God has given us. And it's a challenge for all of us. Don't shrink back, not now, not after what Christ has done for us. Come what may, we have a sure and steadfast anchor. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.